Welcome to BC The Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Stream us on Spotify or subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're enjoying it because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and now TikTok too. We'll be posting photos, videos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Well, we have got a fun day. Yes. Today is one of my favorite topics in the Beatle world, for whatever reason, the butcher cover. Yeah, yeah. I love this picture. I have always loved this picture. It's so funny because my roommate slash one of my best friends just asked me, you know, what are you guys recording on? And I said, the butcher cover. And she's like, what? So I had to explain it to her. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's the Beatles and white coats holding meat and decapitated baby dolls. We think about it so commonly in the Beatles community. It's just this part of it. And uh, yeah, it's in the normies. It's pretty fucked up. What did she think of it when she saw it? I haven't showed it to her yet. Oh, I'm saving it. Yeah. Okay, that's exciting. I'm saving it. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, when she least expects it, I'll just be like, look. Oh, she's going to love it. Or she's going to hate yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. She's probably going to hate it. I mean, that seems like the general reaction even back in the day. <laughs> it which sure was. we'll talk about. So the story of the Butcher cover is really as much a story of the photographer as it is about the Beatles. This photo was taken by Robert or Bob Whitaker. He was an Australian photographer who first encountered the Beatles by way of Brian on the 1964 Australian tour. Totally by chance, Bob went along with a friend who got an assignment to interview Brian for a newspaper called The Jewish News in Australia. Bob was actually very enthralled with Brian. He said he took one look at Brian in his, quote, well-pressed trousers, gingham shirt, smart shoes, silk socks, an expensive watch, and a gold bracelet, and thought he was, quote, a bit of a peacock. Sounds about right. I love it that Brian had such a majestic quality about him to people who first met him. The word is so perfect. <laughs> Peacock. Brian was reserved at first in the interview, but he loosened up. And at the end, he asked Bob if he could see the photos before the Beatles left Melbourne a day or two later. Bob went back to his studio and he felt that while the photos he took were good physical representations of Brian... They didn't show his true essence as Bob saw it. And he also felt that Brian had a great sense of humor. So he wanted to give him something that would be a unique souvenir of his time in Australia and something that he would never forget. So in his dark room, as he developed the photos, he decided to play with them to show Brian in the way Bob had seen him. Another quote, a peacock, an emperor. <laughs> so in one image... He merged some peacock feathers with a photo of Brian to show the feathers surrounding his head. And in the other, Bob added an image of himself that he already had in a pose similar to Brian's, superimposed on either side of Brian's head. That's so funny. I'd seen the Brian with the peacock feathers before. And of course, I'd seen the photo of Brian with his head in his hands before also. I don't know that I've seen the picture before of Bob Whitaker on either side of Brian, which I think is an interesting choice. I wonder how that came about. It almost seems like they may have had like an inside joke because it's kind of an odd thing to superimpose yourself. 
I didn't see anything that further described why he did what he did. So I don't yeah. know if it was because the pose was so similar that he wanted to give him something that had some symmetry like that. The intensity of this meeting made me think maybe there was some sexual spark. That was my thought, too. Yeah. Do you know if Bob Whitaker was gay? No, at least not from what we know publicly. He was survived by his wife and three children. But of course, sexuality is a spectrum and you never know. Reading over about this photo shoot, that was one thing that I thought maybe. That was the first thing I thought. It, it felt like some kind of steamy fan fiction. I love it. It's so funny. And this picture also reminds me a lot of like an Andy Warhol, like a, mm. an early Warhol where he would silkscreen different images over each other. It's sort of like that, especially because and we'll post these photos on our socials. But one of the images of Bob Whitaker on this particular photograph is kind of faded. So it looks a bit like a silkscreen. Yeah, kind it of does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really interesting photos. Um, Brian thought so, too. Bob later met Brian in the Beatles hotel lobby with the envelope of photos and fighting his way through the rabid fans who surrounded Brian as he got off the elevator to meet him, Bob handed him the envelope. And as he did, some of the special photos fell out to the floor in full view of the crowd of fans. And the special photos, let's clarify, are the peacock photos and the superimposed image of Brian and Bob Whitaker. There were uh, to my knowledge, maybe Erica, you have other knowledge, but <laughs> there weren't any quote unquote, really special photos. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this was completely G-rated special. Yes, yes. But they did fall out and they were unusual photos. And uh, Brian turned bright red. But Brian said that he would call Bob once he got a chance to take a better look at all the photos, special and normal. It turned out that Brian was as enthralled by Bob's work as Bob seemed to be by Brian. He loved the way Bob had both expressed himself in his art. And of course, who wouldn't want to be seen as an emperor and a peacock through somebody's eyes? So he was certainly impressed. And he did something that I found shocking. He took a leap of faith, similar to the one that he took almost three years earlier in the Cavern Club, and invited Bob to England, offering to manage his photography career and become Brian's artistic advisor. That's pretty shocking. Met him once, had one interaction, one interview, and he just decided this is the one. So for whatever reason, whatever motivated him, he just had an instinct that this would be good for the future of the Beatles, for the future of Bob, maybe for the future of himself. I don't know. I think part of it is because you see particularly the peacock photo. I'm surprised that Brian liked it because it's not the most flattering picture of him I've ever seen. Yeah, he looks a little tired. He almost looks like he has a black eye. Yeah, <laughs> it's a strange picture. Yeah, but I think the feathers probably really caught Brian's eye. And I don't I think he wasn't afraid to sort of take these artistic liberties, you know, with Brian. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of other people had such reverence for him because he was sort of like a boy genius and this impresario. Obviously, he dressed well and he had this presence about him. But I don't know. These images are pretty playful. Maybe Brian recognized that and sort of saw that Bob was a bit of an avant-garde photographer in that respect. And obviously, he was. Or else we wouldn't be talking about him right. for this episode. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, we all know that Brian has a knack of discovering talent. This is more than signing Billy J. Kramer. 
This is taking yeah. somebody from another country to start an entirely new career under his guidance. Totally. In a discipline that he hadn't been managing before either. Very interesting choice. He's got this streak of impulsivity, which is both a good and a not so good thing. But in this case, I think in the same case with the Beatles, it was a good thing. He acts on his instincts. Yeah, exactly. But Bob was hesitant at first. He had a pretty good career in Melbourne. He was working in the Melbourne Museum of Art. He had fashion spreads in Australian Vogue. He was only 23 at the time. He was doing very well at a young age. Oh my gosh, a baby. He was photographing fashion models. And in one interesting photo that I found, he had been photographing one of his favorite models named Rona Goldsmith with her husband and her new baby. And Bob was particularly moved by the idea that most women, no matter how they might start out, how glamorous their careers are, are kind of doomed to a life of domesticity. And so to express that sentiment, he took a photo of Rona's 14-year-old sister hung up by her hair on a washing line holding a box of laundry detergent. And this sister is Olivia Newton-John. Australia's oh a small gosh. <laughs> Yeah, really. That's so crazy. It's a great photo. It's a great statement. So he took some time to think about it. He took three months, actually, to think about it. But eventually he decided he was going to take up Brian's offer and come to the UK. It was a good contract for him, especially Brian was setting him up as what he called an independent artist, which meant Bob kept full creative control over his own work. Another perk of the job, he quickly got to know the Beatles better, gain their trust and start photographing them everywhere. I think that he and the Beatles were very much in the same wavelength. And this might have been one of the things that Brian's instincts picked up on. The Beatles appreciated Bob's creative spirit. It didn't hurt that they really loved those original Brian photos. They thought he was just taking the piss. They thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, that's art. You interpret it how you interpret it. And, yes, uh, exactly. And the Beatles liked it. And so Bob very quickly became part of the Beatles' inner circle. And he was there to photograph almost every aspect of their lives from late 1964 through 1966. Some of the most famous Beatles photographs were taken during this time by Bob Whitaker. He traveled the world as their tour photographer, capturing landmark events like Shea Stadium, the Tokyo shows, but also intimate moments like when Ringo was in the hospital with tonsillitis, he was there taking pictures. And also when Ringo had his first son, Zach, he was the photographer. So very well integrated into the Beatles' lives, both professionally and personally. He doesn't pose them unless they're doing a specific studio shoot. And when he did pose them, it was to do something uh, different. And he certainly did that. But often when he was with them, he just acted like a fly on the wall. He took photos of them in their element. There are lots of photos of Brian during this time. Another thing that I noticed how often Brian makes his way into the Beatles behind the scenes series of photos. So another reason why I thought maybe him and Brian, their connection was just very strong for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Bob Whitaker. And you could really see that there was kind of a synergy between Bob and the Beatles. Both of them, in their own way, were spearheading this transition from the conventional to the experimental, but in the confines of a mainstream art form. They're both kind of progressing together. 
that's where some of these more experimental photo shoots, including the butcher cover, come into play. Which makes sense about this time for the Beatles. And not to, again, brag on my boy, but, you know, maybe Brian saw this sort of shift in certainly the counterculture, which he was dialed in into, ironically, because he didn't look very countercultural, but just by virtue of who he was, Mm -hmm. you know, and he probably saw value in Bob's creative eye. Yeah, and I think it was. Yeah. You see, even from the earliest photo shoots that he did with them, that they were never the conventional photo shoot. If you think about the image, if you've ever seen the American album Beatles 65, that was a Bob Whitaker photo shoot. And he envisioned the Beatles as the four seasons. And no, not the group, but actually the four (laughs) seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And four of those images are on that Beatles 65 album cover. More an example of the direction that he would eventually take the Beatles was the 1965 photo shoot with John and Cynthia at their house in Weybridge. And this is an extremely famous, some of the best photos of John ever, I think, came out of this particular photo shoot. I agree. One set involved John and Sin acting out the myth of Narcissus. That's where the famous dandelion eye photo came from that I'm sure that Mm. most of you can just picture it right now. Well, I can certainly picture it because right behind me on my wall is a framed photo of that because it was the one of the main images of the Lennon, his life and work exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, I think, the year 2000. And so I've got a little framed poster from that exhibit with the famous wow. dandelion photo. Yeah. So I can just turn around and look at it. And uh, I didn't know the story of Narcissus behind it, though. That's really interesting. I don't care what John said about his own appearance at this time. I think this is a, a wonderful John period. He looks great. Yeah, he he's the worst judge of himself. I, I heartily disagree with his assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we come to the photo shoot that started it all. On March 25th, 1966, they had a shoot scheduled, fairly standard, publicity photos for the upcoming U.S. tour. But Bob had a little bit more in mind that day. Oh, just a little bit. Just a little. Just a little bit. (laughs) A tiny, tiny bit. He had a plan for a photo series that would satirize the absurdity of rapid beetle mania that bordered on a religious fervor. He did have a final vision for this, and what he wanted it to be was a gatefold sleeve on an album cover, no specific album cover, but in the future, in the style of a triptych, which is a three-panel painting often found on religious altars. And the piece had the working title, A Somnambulant Adventure, or Having an Adventure While Sleepwalking. He had some pretty avant-garde ideas coming into this shoot, but the Beatles really seemed to be on the same page as Bob on this particular topic. This was, after all, not long, maybe a month after John had discussed the Beatles and religion with Maureen Cleave. His more popular in Jesus comments would be printed in a U.S. magazine a few months later, causing a world of trouble for them during the summer tour. But contrary to some stories, the butcher cover wasn't John's or any of the Beatles ideas at all. It was all Bob. So Bob planned ahead. Like you'd have to. Yeah, yeah. He did a lot of sourcing for some (laughs) unusual props. And uh, this smorgasbord of insanity included sausages, (laughs) false teeth. Bloody raw meat, glass eyes, hammers, nails, lab coats, a birdcage, 
a severed pig's head and doll parts. <laughs> I would love to know what Bob was smoking when he came up with this laundry list of, of things that he wanted to bring to this photo shoot. Oh, whatever it was, it was the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, apparently. And, you know, it's funny. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will relate to this. But as you're naming all of them off, I'm picturing the different photos that utilize, you know, all of those props because they really did use them all. <laughs> and he created this set of super iconic photographs. But like it, it, as you name them all, it sounds just crazier and crazier. I know. I know. <laughs> so let's go through what came out of the shoot that day. Please. The first image in the proposed triptych was a woman kneeling with her back to the camera. She's kneeling in front of the Beatles, and the Beatles themselves are holding two strings of raw sausage links. Yum. The point of the photo, according to Bob, is that the sausage represents an umbilical cord with the anonymous woman birthing the Beatles. Bob went on to say that in the final version, when that image was going to be inset inside the image of a pregnant woman's womb and, quote, the four beetles laying inside her tummy, all connected to an umbilical cord. I respect the vision, but my goodness. He's nothing if not specific. Absolutely. Another image was of George hammering nails into John's head. It was meant to show that despite their godlike status, the beetles were real, solid people, flesh and blood. They would bleed if you nailed the hole in their head. Yes, that would be a very bad thing. Yes. Yep. Bob was going to drive the point home. He said, quote, John would actually have had a transparent film of wood grain over his face so that he looked like a woodblock. There also would have been a horizon with the sky where the water should be and the water where the sky was. This is giving Yoko Ono vibes to me, mm. especially the reversal of the water in the sky. Imagine if they collaborated. It would just be off the wall. But I, yeah, I wonder really what John thought at this time, you know, before meeting Yoko, if he thought this guy was cuckoo bananas or <laughs> he liked his vision. I don't know. I mean, at that time, John was smoking a lot of pot and he was pretty dissatisfied with the state of Beatlemania. That's true. The next picture in the series is Paul holding a question mark, which is a pretty tame picture, except when you look at the contact sheet, Paul's face was cut out in some of them. So it was very <laughs> sinister looking. Yeah, that's pretty freaky. Yeah. There is a photo of John holding a box over Ringo's head with Ringo's head sort of coming out of it. And the box has the number two million written on it, symbolized that Ringo or any other beetle was just another of the two million people who were on Earth at the time, no more or no less special than anyone else. And finally that day, there were photos of Paul and George with their heads inside bird cages that he said simply symbolized that, quote, these two guys had beautiful singing voices. They literally sang like canaries. Funny he chose George and not John. I think it works with George in that you can also see the secondary symbolism, I guess, of them being trapped in bird cages like birds who sing beautifully are that they can't escape. For sure. I'm surprised he didn't mention that in the descriptions I found because... Mm -hmm. That seems to be very much along the lines of what he was getting at with the rest of the photos. That seems about right. Then we get to the infamous Butcher cover series. This was meant to show how the Beatles' fame was threatening to dismember them both physically and psychologically. And he didn't get the idea for the doll parts out of nowhere. He was inspired by the German surrealist artist Hans Bellmer, especially his 1937 book called Die Puppe. 
think that's how you say it, right? <laughs> I think so. Uh, <laughs> de poupe. I would say it that way. Well, de poupe means the doll. So Bob had big plans for this part of the triptych. This was the center spread. The butcher photo would have been quite small, actually, inside the frame. It would have been, quote, two and a quarter inches square in the center of a 12-inch sleeve. Around their heads would have been silver halos with precious stones. And then the whole of the rest of it would have been like a Russian icon, silver and gold. So that I've sort of canonized them and put them into the church. That meat is meant to represent the fans and the false teeth and the false eyes is the falseness of representing a godlike image as a golden calf. He really thought this out. I got to give him credit for that. He did. He thought this out. He had a real plan for it. First, he gave the Beatles the opportunity to get to know the dolls. Uh, they didn't have the coats on yet. He hadn't introduced the meat or the false teeth. The first part of this photo series is just the Beatles playing with the dolls. There's one where John is holding it up kind of in a poor Yorick sort of <laughs> pose. And Paul kind of looks like he's having a deep philosophical conversation with another one of them. They are enjoying themselves. Yes, the head that Paul is sort of having a conversation with, it's just the head. It's not the whole baby doll. <laughs> yeah. And they also sort of have these baby doll parts. Like one has her legs, you know, splayed wide open and another one has just the torso and none of them have heads. This pile is laying at their feet. So it's not like, you know, they're, they're playing with dolls. Like you or I would have played with dolls as a kid. It's uh, it's all very macabre. Well, maybe, maybe not you. Um, oh, uh oh. <laughs> I think the reason, and side note to uh, this really unnecessary tangent, but I think the reason I like this so much is that my first day of college, I was walking down to the store or something with some friends I had met that first day, and we found a dismembered doll head on the street. And okay. we took that doll head in, and we gave that doll head a home. We painted her face with <laughs> glitter. We put nails into her head, into her ears. We dyed her hair. We named her creatively. Her name was Head, is is Head, and <laughs> Head still lives to this day. What? Where's Head? Head is, I believe, with my friend Kristen right now. She gets uh, she gets passed around from time to time, but Head uh, formed kind of a bond for four of us that still goes on today. And Jesus Christ, Erica! <laughs> if you look in my bathroom, I actually have a very tiny baby head it was given to me by one of these friends some time ago and she still hangs out with me so hmm, I don't know I don't I don't I feel a bit of an affinity toward John and Paul taking a look at these baby heads right now okay I feel now like I understand why you wanted this episode so bad <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know you on a whole different level I've known you for probably a decade and <laughs> holy shit <laughs> And uh, I think Bob Whitaker would have uh, approved of Head. I think so, too. I mean, you combined, like, the baby head with the nails. And I think if Bob would have thought about the glitter, maybe he'd be sad he didn't think about it for this shoot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he used the medium of, I don't know, pig's blood. And we chose a, okay. a different way to go about it. Just a little different. Glitter, pig's blood. Yeah. So, you know, back to the dolls. <laughs> back to this. <laughs> The original photos were fairly tame, and then he moved on. So the next set of photos, he has gotten the Beatles into their, their butcher coats, and there's a particularly disturbing image that does not have the baby dolls in it, 
John, Paul, and Ringo are seated with the meat, the raw meat draping over their laps. George stands behind them holding two large joints of meat, one in each hand. And two more are being held off camera by assistants, so they're kind of floating in midair next to George. And our creepy butchers all have their eyes closed, reminiscent to me of Victorian death photography. Mm. And to complete the look, glass eyes are sprinkled across the meat, and three of them lay in a row on John's knuckles. I thought this was the most disturbing of all of them. I don't know if I'd seen this photograph before. I don't think it's number one popular, but it's certainly out there. Well, you know, listeners, you will be able to see it because we'll post it. And it's mm. pretty disturbing. I mean, I I just told you that story about the doll's heads, but this freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty weird. It is, you know, it's just unnerving, especially because, yeah, their eyes are all closed. So you're sort of observing them and they're not observing you, mm -hmm. which makes it just that much weirder. I don't know. It, it feels strange. You never see pictures with everybody's eyes closed unless they're yeah. not alive so it's just creepy yeah it's very <laughs> strange so now we get to the main event the picture we all know featuring the dolls parts and the meat meat lies around the beetles and in john's case it's spilling out of his lab coat the coats are white their hands are clean but the doll parts they carry are dirty with what looks like meat blood as in the other shots, George is standing behind the seated John, Paul, and Ringo. George wears a maniacal grin and holds a baby doll up with his fingers shoved in the neck. Paul is sitting in the center, flanked by two headless dolls on each shoulder, kind of crawling up to his head. One of them has a hole cut in the back, kind of looks like the sound hole in an acoustic guitar to me. The head in one of these decapitated dolls sits on Paul's lap. And in the middle of all this gore, the Beatles look absolutely thrilled with the situation they found themselves <laughs> in. Paul, especially, his expression completes this photo. His innocent, open-mouthed smile just adds the sense of discomfort and tension when juxtaposed against this gory scene. That was a beautiful description. It makes me think we should have saved this for Halloween. We all take for granted we've seen this picture so many times, but when you actually break it down, it's pretty disturbing. It is. It is. And they're having so much fun. <laughs> they are. They're very delighted with themselves. They're happy with their situation. They're probably quite stoned. Yes, that's true. That helps. We don't see any evidence that they are unhappy. And from what we know from what they've said later on, at least John, Paul and Ringo were pretty much on board with the idea. Paul said, he meaning Bob, knew we liked black humor and sick jokes. And he said, I have an idea. Stick these white lab coats on. It didn't seem too offensive to us. It was just dolls and a lot of meat. I don't know what he was trying to say, but it seemed a little more original than the things the rest of the people were getting us to do. Well, that's true. Yeah. Where is the lie? <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm sure they were so sick of posing for sweet mop top photos by then. Yes. John echoed the sentiment. He said the photographer was a bit of a surrealist, you know, and he brought along all these babies and pieces of meat and doctor's coats. So we really got into it. And that's how we felt. So we sort of, I especially pushed for it to be an album cover just to break the image, you know. And then Ringo goes on, the sleeve is great for us, but because we were quite a nice bunch of boys and we thought, let's do something like this. That's John, Paul, and Ringo. Now, George had a different 
feeling about it. He didn't look back on it as fondly, despite how happy he looks in the photos. His comment was, I thought it was gross. And I also thought it was stupid. Sometimes we all did <laughs> stupid things, thinking it was cool or hip when it was naive and dumb. And that was one of them. And this is why we love George. He's always keeping it real. He doesn't paint it in purple prose. No, he does not. <laughs> so the photo shoot was complete. And even though Bob had a very, very clear vision for what this triptych album cover would be like, there were no concrete plans to actually make the piece or to use it for any specific Beatles project. So on the Beatles went with their lives. A month later, this is April 29th of 1966, the Beatles were in Brian's office for an interview with a German magazine. Bob Whitaker was there too, just as one of the staff photographers, essentially. And at some point, it was decided they needed photos, perhaps to go with the article, perhaps for the upcoming U.S. albums. We don't really know why, but they found a steamer trunk and took a series of photos. And if you look at the original photos, you can see Brian's curtains in his office are there. You can see mundane objects like a lamp and a bottle and a styrofoam cup sitting on the side where they would have cropped out the image. It was very impromptu. Nobody came to the office that day expecting to be photographed. Nobody had makeup. There was no photography lighting in Brian's office. And as Bob Whitaker recalled, not loving this photo too much, he says, I made that dumbass photo of the Beatles with the <laughs> trunk in Brian Epstein's office when we were all in Argyle Street next door to the London Palladium. It was far more stupid than anything else I could think of. The trunk was to hand in the office, so I thought that by putting the light meter in the picture, it might convey an idea of the speed of light running so fast that it shot straight back up your arse. I mean, even uh, thinking on his feet, he comes up with a creative concept behind this pretty boring photograph. Yeah, he did not enjoy the photo. I don't think anybody expected that there would be much to it, really. I mean, the Beatles look exhausted. They look bored. They do not give a fuck. Super unhappy. And of course, at the same time, Capitol Records in the States was prepping another Beatles album. And these are kind of being lost to history now. But before Sgt. Pepper, albums in the U.S. and the U.K. differed. The U.S. usually put out more albums because they had an 11-song limit where U.K. albums were 14. So there were just more albums. They like to mix them differently. They like to cut them differently. And so for this one, it was going to be called Yesterday Ellipsis and Today, with the yesterday, of course, referring to Paul's song yesterday that had recently been released as a single. The capital contract was that they could do this. And while they had to have Brian's approval on the final choices, they had full carte blanche in reconfiguring the songs of renaming the albums and um, redoing the art. So it was some of these albums are kind of close. Some of them are very close. And some of them, like this one, totally, totally different. And in this one, they were doing the album. Capital called up Brian saying, we're doing this album. We need some photos. Please send us some photos. So Brian sent them what he had on hand, I guess. He sent them these trunk photos. Capital received the photos from Brian. They mocked up a few designs. The design that they first did had this yellow text on this blue strip next to it with the photo to the right. They might have done a little color correction, but it it's very drab looking, especially with the colors they chose. And I think they chose that yellow and blue theme to match their own yesterday single that was back with Act Naturally in the States that also had a blue banner with yellow text on it. And with uh, the Beatles in white as well. Yeah, that's true. 
there's some good design consistency there, but overall it's it's not the most appealing cover. There are a few of these floating around because they printed a few mock-ups during the design phase. One of them survives thanks to Cass Elliott because Aww. Capital gave one to Cass in 66. Cass loved the Beatles and she really liked the story of the Butcher cover too because she thought it was a funny example of how crazy the music industry was. Two years later, she gave it to her neighbor named Jerry Ponce, who in 2010 sold it at auction. So it had never had a record. It was just a, a mock-up, but one of maybe five or six total that have ever existed. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So thanks, Cass. Cass may have liked this, but Brian did not. He rejected it. Capital came back to him in a few days with the same trunk poster, but cut out so that it's on a white background. There's actually a photo from May 20th of Brian reviewing this design sample while he was on site for the filming of the paperback writer and rain photos. Ah. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's so interesting to just to see history unfolding in that way, but also yeah. to see the evolution of the cover. They had moved the Beatles over to the left from the right. They had taken out that garish blue strip. You can see that the album title is written in very plain font just to the right of the Beatles. And I can see why Brian probably didn't love that. Right. Funnily enough, the day before, the Beatles happened to have seen the first prints from that butcher shoot. And they loved them. There are actually photos out there of both John and Paul looking delighted as they review the negatives and the proofs. So. When they see these revised, boring yesterday and today cover mock-ups, which they might have never even seen at all had Brian not happened to have them the day when he was doing that, the photo shoot, um, they hated it. And they decided that it would really make them happy to use the butcher image instead that they loved so much when they saw the day before. And once they fixated on what they wanted, they relentlessly pressured Brian to send it to Capitol despite his reservations. I cannot imagine. No, I can't either. That is not... Brian might have liked that peacock photo, but I, he did not enjoy this. Yeah, yeah. That's a, this is a little bit different than the peacock photo, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> but what it also points out, though, is that the common myth around why the butcher cover exists wasn't true. Again, that the Beatles did not conceive of this. They did not create this image specifically to send the message to Capitol that Capitol butchered the Beatles records with the U.S. albums, though that is a popular, that's a popular misconception. In truth, the Beatles didn't really care about these albums much either way. Like they didn't like it because they didn't like the way Capitol chopped up their carefully considered track lists. And they thought it was actually a bit stingy to make people pay more for extra albums with fewer songs on them. But being able to alter the Beatles albums was in the contract and the band didn't really care so much that they would make a statement about it. They had a lot of other things they were doing. Rather, they thought it really didn't make much of an impact and they liked the image and they thought it'd be funny to use it on the cover. And so they pushed for it. And at this point in the Beatles career, Brian didn't have a level of influence over them to force them to do anything. And in fact, when it came to creative decisions, he usually didn't try to influence them at all. So he made his feelings known, but the Beatles were just immovable about this. So all he could do was 
send the photos along and be their advocate if they needed it. And they needed it very quickly. I would imagine also at this time he would have trusted the photographer he managed, you know, Bob Whitaker. You know that feeling you have if you do something, you know it's not quite right. You know it's probably going to blow up in your face. Yeah. And you just waiting for that other shoe to drop. And I can just imagine that Brian probably felt that way. He knew that this was not, from a business perspective, this was not a great idea. He probably also thought they would never accept it. Yeah, probably. I mean, this is really crazy. But then he kind of dug himself into a hole, didn't he? Because uh, a little bit. When Capital received the photo, they were horrified, as expected. Alan Livingston, Capital's president at the time, recalls arguing about it with both Brian and Paul, telling them that record dealers would refuse to handle such a grotesque image. And in both cases, the protests were met with a unified front and outright refusal to reconsider. Paul even told him, it's our comment on the war. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Most likely, that was just something Paul made up as he was trying to persuade Alan Livingston based on a comment of John's. John had said something to the effect of that if the American public can accept the savagery of the Vietnam War, then they can accept the pictures of this Beatles on an album. I don't know if he was saying it's a protest photo, but he was saying like, come on, they can they can handle it. Yeah, yeah. They had to use whatever they could to state their case because they had no intention of backing down. And Brian also, he fought for this choice regardless of how much he hated it. And he hated it. At one point, <laughs> Brian told Tony Barrow, what I'd really like to do is set fire to the whole lot and never let them see the light of day, meaning the pictures. Tony agreed wholeheartedly with the butcher session might well be disastrous to the career of any lesser band but had to say that the Beatles were big enough to withstand the bad publicity. A year earlier, Epstein would have stood his ground and destroyed the transparencies. Like the rest of us, he was sickened by some of the stuff Whitaker had taken, but he bent under the pressure from John, chose one of the less offensive shots where the Beatles were grinning rather than sneering, and sent the transparency to Alan Livingston and Capitol. He released several other similar shots to EMI in London to use in press advertising for the new single, which coupled Paperback Writer and Rain, and he handed one to Disc and Music Echo, which published it in color on the front cover of the June 11th issue. So Brian's kind of doubling down. Yeah, he kind of took this to the next level because it's not like he's sort of like burying it under the uh, pile of other photos like I erroneously just assumed. It's like he is pushing it to the forefront a little bit because that's what the Beatles wanted. And maybe the Beatles asked him to do this for the paperback writer and Rain, but they didn't need to. They had those photos on location where they filmed oh, it. Oh, yeah. They don't need this. It's unrelated, completely unrelated. Oh, totally. <laughs> and so yeah. I don't know what his reasoning is behind it, but it, it was probably at John and Paul's insistence. I'm sure. And I'm sure they wanted him to throw his weight around because he was obviously such an important figure and could get the stuff done. Yeah. So Capitol designer George Asaki, who is a storied album cover designer, he received the new image. He got to work on the cover. As on the Beatles side, there was a clear split. George Asaki, like the Beatles and the other creatives, he kind of liked it. He thought it was fun. And uh, the administrative side, not so much clearly seeing the business risks involved in something like that. 
So on May 31st, Capitol gave Brian one last chance to change his mind, presenting him with four new mock-ups, three new variations on the steamer trunk, and the fourth, the butcher cover. And Brian, at the bidding of John and Paul, resolutely rejected the steamer trunks once again. Why are they so committed to the damn steamer trunk? Like, if they would have maybe chosen another photo, it could have swayed them. I don't know. It, who Who's to say? If they would have just not stuck with that damn steamer trunk. Brian could have accidentally stuck some other publicity photos in that package when he sent them That's off to Capitol. And Capitol designed many Beatles records. They might have had a less creative but more appealing visual if they had reused something else. Yeah, totally. But no, it seemed to be that it was one choice or the other choice. And that was all we're doing for this one. Mm -hmm. With no other choice now that they refused the three more covers, Butcher Cover went into production. And Alan Livingston made a very responsible decision. He asked that Capital first print a small test run to see if they would get the reaction they expected. But there was a miscommunication, and instead of a test run, a full 750,000 covers were printed on a rush schedule, stuffed, shrink-wrapped, and distributed across the U.S. with incredible speed and time for a scheduled June 15th release. Wow, that is fast. And also, somebody definitely got fired for that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but it was in reaction to previous Beatles records, there had been less coordination so there'd been an expected release, but not all albums had arrived at the stores in time. So right. they were making a conscientious effort to not do that. So with Livingston's directive to print a test run not heard, they just thought, okay, 750,000, we're going to be on the ball. We're going we're gonna to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So the reception was immediate and nearly unanimous. People hated it. The June 11th issue of... <laughs> Disc and Music Echo printed an alternate take of the photo on, on their cover with the title, Beatles, What a Carve Up! And asking readers oh to weigh in. And weigh in they did. Fans called it disgusting and revolting. A horrible picture. A sick idea. One fan declared, from now on, I'm a vegetarian. Was that fan Paul McCartney? Because... Um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All four of them became vegetarians, ironically. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Maybe it was thanks to the butcher cover. There were some positive comments, not 50-50, not even close, but a few. Uh, one fan observed, it shows harmony, loyalty, and perfect understanding of each other. It's super. Another said, it's great. What's wrong with meat? We see it and eat it every day, and it has a certain atmosphere about it. Well, it does <laughs> have a certain atmosphere about it. That's true. It made a lot of sense that the reaction was so overwhelmingly negative. I mean, this was an expansion period for the Beatles, sure, and for society at large at different levels of speed. But while the Beatles themselves were in the midst of their own transition, many fans hadn't really caught on to it yet, especially the younger ones, either that the Beatles were doing it or as an awakening for themselves. I mean, this was, this was the quietest time in the Beatles' career to date since Beatlemania. They, were supposed to do the third movie. The third movie fell through. So they spent a lot of time in this early part of 66 working on Revolver, doing drugs, exploring their world, opening their minds. Like this is when George got like super, super into Indian music. But the fans didn't see any of that. So to see Rubber Soul as the last 
version, which had a little, you know, that was a little bit experimental, the cover, but I don't think it was a bridge to the butcher cover necessarily. Yeah, the rubber sole cover is more of like a wink and a nod to those in the know, mm-hmm. you know, who were pot smokers and that kind of thing. But this is like, it's not subtle at all. Yeah, no, meat and baby doll heads, not subtle now, certainly not subtle in 1966. If you want to get attention, that's one way to do it, I guess. That's true. But even Bob Whitaker didn't think this was a good idea. And not because he thought that the picture was grotesque, but because it wasn't in context. He had said he had he protested about this. He said it was reproduced as a record cover without ever having the artwork completed by me. The cover layout was somebody else's conception. It was a good idea to ban it at the time because it made no sense at all. It was just this rather horrific image of four beetles whom everybody loved covered in raw meat, the arms, legs and torsos of dolls and false teeth. But they are only objects placed on the Beatles, rather like making a movie. I mean, what you want to read into it is entirely up to you. I was trying to show that the Beatles were flesh and blood. So by saying it was incomplete, does he mean that he wasn't able to, like, pair it with the other images that he had planned to? Or because it seems complete to me. Or was he going to, you know, how he talked about cutting John's or, you know, putting a transparency of wood over John's face and the nail photo? Yeah, that's what he meant. He meant that it wasn't in its three-act triptych formula. It didn't have all of the photo enhancements like the wood, like the womb with the beetles that were going to be encased in that. didn't have any of those things. And so out of context, it was just a gross picture. But he felt that in context, it would have, it would have said something more. Mm. I'm not sure I buy the implied argument that like 1966 America would have appreciated this more with the nails and the the womb and the religious iconography. But, you know, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if any mainstream American era would totally understand it. I don't know if 2024 America would really (laughs) understand the Beatles inside a womb with like umbilical cord sausage links and yeah, a woman giving birth to them. That's, I think that's strange. If you would see a picture of Harry Styles like that, I think it would be uh, very controversial. I guess it would. It would raise a lot of questions. Yes, indeed. So despite the expense and the hassle, Capital knew they had to pull this cover immediately. And so on June 10th, they launched Operation Retrieve. Ooh. And recalling 750,000 albums was not an easy feat. 50,000 of them went to the local dump near Capitol's Boston Distribution Center. This was a very unusual and bulky request to the dump, and it had to remain secret. It wasn't a leap to assume that if this had become known, hundreds of shovel-wielding fans would be digging through the landfill looking for these albums. And Capitol actually had to bribe the garbage dump manager with 100 bucks to secure the silence. I was going to say, if it were near the Capitol Tower here, I would be out there tonight digging down. I know. See what I could find. I know. (laughs) They made it hard, though. To ensure the albums were truly trashed, they were dumped in a huge hole that was filled with water, and then they were covered with a couple of feet of earth, and then other garbage was poured over it. And these guys could actually say, I buried Paul, couldn't they? Mm -hmm. Love it, love it. Um, Wouldn't it be easier to burn the covers? Burning vinyl seems like a bad idea, but the offensive part was the cover. So just burn the jackets. I don't know. Am I am I off here? That makes sense to me. (laughs) 
like bury them and go to all this effort of putting like water and garbage on top like i don't know man and it, they buried the records with them anyway like they could have saved the records i guess yeah i mean why not they could have put those into the whatever they envisioned the updated cover would be for everybody else a letter was sent to those who received the albums with a request to return them noting that the original cover well it was created in england and it was intended as a pop art satire but you know, our focus groups didn't quite get it, so uh, it's quite subject to misinterpretation. And please, please return this to avoid undeserved harm to the Beatles' image or reputation. Please return them. So they tried to salvage as many of those returned albums as they could by pasting a new cover over the Butcher image. As far as what that cover image would be, George Asaki went back to the drawing board, sort of, but with no time to consult with the Beatles or apparently no other image of the Beatles ever left in the world, he took the rejected <laughs> trunk cover and he cut out the background again. So he kept, with the, he kept the white background and he saw that if he used the psychedelic font that he developed for the Butcher cover on this new cover, it would match with that font that was already on the back cover and feel somewhat cohesive. That was his final solution. They printed this alarmingly fast. I don't know how they made it happen. And they manually then put these albums together. It was exhausting. It was time consuming. It was expensive. They had to bring in capital staff from all the surrounding areas. They had to call into work on the weekend. They ordered hundreds of pizzas as the new covers were pasted over the offensive butcher image. Then they had to shrink wrap every one of them again, created a huge bottleneck for other albums that were slated to be produced. It was a crazy project. And as a result, it became the only Beatles album Capital ever lost money on, despite selling over a million copies in the U.S. Wow. I mean, if it were anybody but the Beatles, you know, this would have just been trashed and been like, see you next album, album, yeah. guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's an insane thing for everybody. In the end, they saved a little more than half of them. The rest had to be printed new anyway. All of the money and the human labor involved in saving them, who knows whether that actually saved them money or materials or anything. And we can argue whether Capital actually made the right decision to recall the butcher cover in the first place. Maybe it would have just been a weird footnote in the Beatles' history, but it got turned into one of the most sought-after Beatles collectibles around. Because obviously people found out. No matter how much Capital tried to conceal this mistake, a massive recall of a Beatles album was not going to go unnoticed. So there were, of course, leaks from the hundreds of staff who worked overtime to correct the error. Not to mention there were DJs, there were record sailors who had advanced copies. There was one Boston-area DJ who even snarked on the air that three Beatles records could be found at the dump. And uh, even though the official release date was June 15th, a few record sellers had put them out early, so people had seen them and even bought a few. Many more figured it out accidentally when they discovered the treasure underneath some of the steamer trunk covers. This discovery was made, and if you have one, this is how you find out if you have a butcher cover. You look at the trunk cover, and there's a dark triangle that shows through on the right side of the album. And that's that dark triangle is Ringo's black sweater from the original photo. And so it kind of became an exciting thing because a mix of new and pasted over covers were sent when the album was re-released on June 20th. So there was some excitement for people in the know about, you know, whether or not you're going to get one of these or not. And um, to add to the mystery... 
nobody from Capitol ever talked about this. So people knew that made the rumor mill run wild about why. And that is undoubtedly the reason why there were rumors that it was a statement from the Beatles about Capitol butchering their records because there was no explanation ever given. Right. They probably assumed Capitol was offended by it, hence why they pasted over the butcher cover. Yeah. And if you find this image and you don't know anything about it, you need to give meaning to it. Sure. And the meaning that Bob Whitaker had assigned to it, with or without the womb and the nails and everything, I don't know if that that was <laughs> very immediately evident just seeing that picture. So you have to come up with a reason. Yeah, definitely not, especially to the fans, because it's sort of, you know, targeting the fans, you know, they're in the meat, as you said. So yeah, it's the most comprehensive way to make sense of it. Of course, Capitol's pacing over. It must be about Capitol. The U.S. albums are so different from the U.K. The Beatles probably hate that, like they're making this statement. And it kind of like is the path of least resistance to an explanation. Yeah, and it cuts out any other explanations because in the absence of, a, of an actual explanation, I can imagine people like with a religious bent were thinking that it was some kind of sacrifice or maybe it would have started the uh, the satanic panic 20 years too early. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Capitol could have just waited until people were burning Beatles records in the summer of 66, like they would have just taken care of uh, all the butcher covers. If only they'd known what was to come, they would have saved so much money and time. I know they probably hated themselves for, you know, the garbage dump incident. (laughs) (laughs) I hope somebody tried. I know. Me too. So the rarity of this has made it a collector's item. There are a good number out there as far as collector's items go. So it has been referred to as the most easy to find collector's record in the world or something, but they are fairly rare. And there's three categories of butcher covers out there. So the first version is called First State. So those were the albums that were printed with the butcher image and were released without the steamer trunk pasted over. You could get those in one of two ways. If you were a person who obtained an original copy in some way before the recall, or if you happen to be Capitol President Alan Livingston, who foresaw the potential, I guess, for these to be a major collector's item, and he brought a box of 24 of them home. So he had four stereo and 20 mono. Stereo only accounted for about 15 of the total pressings, worth a lot more. And in the early 90s, Alan's son, Peter, sold these with Alan's blessing at a Beatle Fest. And uh, he got, I don't know, like 2,500, 4,000 at that time. But when one of these comes on the market, again, called a Livingston Butcher, they can go up to the highest I saw was 44,000 for a monocopy and 85000 for a stereo copy. My gosh. So those are the best. Those are the most valuable ones. Well, I'm going to be spending all my free time at garage sales around LA to find one of these Livingston butchers. Oh, yes. I have heard that that is the way to get a butcher cover. <laughs> you go to garage sales, you <laughs> yes. buy it for three bucks and maybe you'll get lucky. Yes, exactly. The most valuable first state butcher cover was the one owned by John Lennon. This was autographed by himself, Paul, and by Ringo. See, George really did hate it. And for many years, it was hanging on his wall. So apparently John had an enormous Beatle bootleg collection, which is surprising, but maybe not surprising considering last week when we were talking to Deirdre Kelly about his clothing collection. 
um, from his Beatles days. He was kind of a hoarder with that stuff. Yeah, and for almost every bootleg, he kept two copies, one to play and one to collect. But he had one of these for State Butcher covers, and he ended up trading this album in the 70s for some other Beatles bootlegs. And (laughs) his copy sold for $230,000 at auction in 2019. Damn, okay. Yeah. And when John made the trade, he sent a note along with it, which said, this is the famous butcher cover. It's too horrible to even be seen. So don't look, but you can sell it for $11 million. My original idea for the cover was better, decapitate Paul, but he wouldn't go along with it. Classic John. Yeah, it might be my favorite butcher cover related item of all time. Yes. And now I'm just picturing him at Beetle Fest sort of swapping. What the hell? Like, yeah, swapping stuff with other collectors. That is too funny. <laughs> oh, my God. So more popular, though, is a second state, which is that refers to the pasted over butcher covers that still have the trunk photo on top of them. Third state are the same albums that somebody has tried to or has peeled off the trunk cover and you see the butcher cover. With both of these condition is what dictates value, but especially with third state, a bad peel job, just it can't be fixed. So second states are on average more valuable because you know there's a pristine butcher cover underneath. Butcher cover peeling videos are my new favorite thing on YouTube. They're very enjoyable. I didn't know that was a thing. Neither. It's a thing. It's great. Is it like an ASMR thing? Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of. Because they seam it off. It's really... It's, re- it's relaxing and you know it's coming so you know it's underneath it's exciting that sounds nice yeah it's fun um, and as with anything else there is a secondary market around these there's plenty of counterfeit butcher covers out there in all three states so if you come across one and you are unsure there are tons of videos from collectors showing the specific ways to tell what you have or what you're buying so there's a million scams out there so probably more of them are fake than not fake at this point And if you have a second state copy and you want it peeled, look no further than thebutchercover.com, a service that will peel your butcher cover for you. And their facts, the question is asked, should I peel my own butcher cover? Their answer, well, that depends. Do you drill your own teeth? And when you do, is the job successful? (laughs) Yes, these things are equal in importance and in skill. Yeah. So there you go. But, you know, if you have one and it's not totally destroyed, it's probably worth something. Most recently, a mint-conditioned stereo second state sold for $8,000, a mono for $6,000. A Livingston first state can still go for $60,000 or more. Oh, need one. Need to find one of those. Absolutely. There's got to be somebody who has one that does not know what they have. Of course there is. There's got to be. It's just a matter of finding the right garage sale. Yes, exactly. I do feel like I have an advantage, though, being in L.A. You do. I, I feel it in my bones. I wish you luck on your journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'll keep you all posted. If you get a second state, don't show it to me. Like, I can't not peel like paint and stuff. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't leave it alone if I had one. I will hide it from you. Yeah, I'd have to peel it off. Because <laughs> I would keep it. I would keep it as it is. I would it want me. to for a day. Why I don't wear nail polish. Like, I can't keep it for more than a day because I'm like, ooh, what if I peel this off? <laughs> <laughs> and then I look like I put my hands through meat grinders. So, you know, can't well, do that, it. That's relevant to today's episode. It is relevant. And maybe that's why, maybe that's why I like it so much. There's a couple of reasons why you like this so much, but I think we've been through them. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but today the image itself, 
It's no longer especially shocking. We've seen it for 50 years. I mean, unless you consider the fact they all ended up being vegetarians in the end. But it's kind of a sign of the times, though. In, the, in 1966, the record industry was changing very fast. Having even put it out for a day was kind of a sign of the change. They didn't even want to show a toilet seat on an album cover that same year. Mm, with the mamas and the papas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So and only two years later... John would go for a much higher shock value with the two virgins cover. I mean, that had to be wrapped in brown paper, but it was printed. They did print it. Do you think Capital made the right choice at that time in recalling it? I don't know. I, I go back and forth on it. I think, you know, if they hadn't recalled it, we wouldn't have this wonderful legend of the butcher cover, you know, and mm -hmm. it just adds to the Beatles mystique and their history and the fervor around them. So I guess in that aspect, I think it was a good call. But, you know, that's speaking from the future. I don't think it would have caused quite the stir that I'm saying this with hesitancy because I'm trying to really evaluate, like, if, you know, little Johnny came home from the record store with the butcher cover, what mom and dad would say. But I feel like it might be one of those records that kids would, like, hide and, like, that would be their secret scandalous cover or something uh, just a little bit macabre that they would enjoy. Was it worth the effort and the expense? Probably not. Although working in the record industry myself, I'm very impressed by the speed. That would never happen today. So kudos to the Capitol crew. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, as far as just it as an item, as a thing, I think that it was an overreaction to recall that album. And I feel like on one hand, with the benefit of hindsight, two years later, it would have not really been seen as a big deal. But on yeah. the other hand, we also didn't know that the Bigger Than Jesus stuff was coming down the line. And I do wonder if that might have turned what really, I mean, the Bigger Than Jesus thing was pretty small and self-contained in the grand scheme of things. But I wonder if that, it would incite a more general level of mainstream disgust mm. might have propelled that from something that was harmful to the Beatles psyche in the moment, but really didn't do anything to their career to something that actually could have made them banned in the US or, you know, thought of as devil worshippers or something worse than what happened. I don't know. You know? Yeah. I think what you're saying is with the bigger than Jesus comment, they could have pointed back to the butcher cover as something to reinforce that to say, oh, yeah, John Lennon thinks he's bigger than Jesus. Well, just look at this butcher cover where they decapitated baby dolls and they have meat. So obviously they're murderers. They hate babies. <laughs> and they're, they're sacrificing people. Yeah. Yeah, they're sacrificing them. I don't know how widespread that would have been. Yeah, who knows? But on the other hand, there would have been a group of people who would have wanted this album so much more because it, it symbolized some kind of defiance and veering from the status quo. Yeah, 66 is a weird time. You know, it literally was smack dab in the middle of the decade. So it was sort of, as you said, Erica, quiet time for the Beatles, but also like very quiet time insofar as it wasn't the summer of love yet with 67. It wasn't the coming out of the 50s, part of the early 60s. Again, two virgins two years later. That's not a long time. No. You know, so that's kind of shocking. I still have the same iPhone I had two years ago. 
<laughs> I know I recently got a new one. I've had that one for like five years. Like, you know, so it's like, you've got to really think about the timeline here, but I agree. I think if it had come out and say 69, it might've been tame, you know, by that time, certainly in the seventies, it would have. Yeah. Or just cute. Cute. Yeah. It's adorable. What are they trying to do? So I think just the year, I think informed that a lot. And again, it's, uh, hindsight is 2020. We can say that because we're looking back on the whole decade as, you know, one lump era. But yeah, I think that had a big part in this. Yeah. Either way, what it did get, like you said, was this incredible story and uh, collectible, this moment in the Beatles history that is kind of a microcosm of what was happening in the larger world. And just one more interesting thing to think about with the Beatles and a great piece for your wall if you like baby doll heads. Well, you do. So you should probably frame a busher cover. I probably should. In my bathroom <laughs> above the little baby head. Exactly. <laughs> so if you're listening and you're, you have a butcher cover, tell us about it. Do you like it? Let us know your thoughts on it. Show us your butcher covers if you've got them. Do it. Tag mm -hmm. us. Add us. Yes, please. Email us. Just tell us about your butcher. And uh, thanks again for listening to BC The Beatles. As always, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. Give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.